Boucher. Today on Space Q, I'll be talking with Peter Vischer, Chief Technology Officer at Ontario Driving Gear. Ontario Driving Gear is not your typical space company. In fact, for most of its 55-year history, Ontario Driving Gear had nothing to do with space, that is, until 2008. And still today, this new Hamburg-based business, just west of Kitchener-Waterloo, is still primarily known for developing gears and transmission system, as well as their Argo all-terrain vehicles. How they got involved in the space sector is part of the story we'll hear today. The other part of the story is how this company has turned that involvement into a new commercial line of extreme terrain robotics, or XTR, and how their robotic mobility platform might be roving the surface of the moon in the not-too-distant future. Welcome, Peter, to the SpaceQ podcast. Thank you. Um, Ontario Driving Gear is not a company I would have expected to get involved in the space sector, yet it did nine years ago. What's the story behind the move in 2008 to start designing planetary rovers? Uh, thanks, Mark. Um, yeah, it's it's been a long road. We uh, we started in 2008. Um, there was a, a couple of lunar rover concept studies that were underway uh, that the Canadian Space Agency was funding, and we were invited to be on one of the teams to assist with uh, the vehicle design, uh, largely because of our history with with commercial and industrial and even recreational off-road vehicles. Uh, so we we proposed a vehicle that we called uh, Darth Crater, uh, which was essentially a, a, a couple of a very simple vehicles attached with a, a steering pivot. So it's a bit different than a uh, typical lunar rover or Martian rover design that you might see. Uh, but it was a, a very uh, lightweight and a very rugged design. Um, so this this concept study was quite well received and quickly evolved into a, a prototype build. Um, the, the concept that we proposed uh, actually turned into the Juno rover, which is uh, one of the CSA's uh, workhorse rovers that they currently use today. So it's, uh, the, like I said, a very simple four-wheel design that's a very uh, flexible design in terms of what kind of payload you can put on it. So the CSA uses it for developing uh, many, uh, many of the payloads that they want to develop for rovers, and it's a, a very convenient platform to put it on and get it outside and get it working in the field and making sure that everything works properly. Um, so that, that took us to about 2011, at which point we were, um, again, part of, the, part of a team. We were awarded some contracts to develop uh, Artemis Senior and Artemis Junior. Uh, pair of related rovers the one the big one has eight wheels so it it's called senior <laughs> and then a smaller one with only four wheels called Artemis Jr. and Artemis Jr. was uh, targeted at a, uh, a joint project that that the Canadian Space Agency and NASA were working on called Resource Prospector so it, it was designed to carry a payload that would be searching for water on the moon and the payload was developed specifically to operate in an analog terrain. In this case, it was the mountains in Hawaii, where it would uh, do a demonstration and show that this was a feasible thing to do. Um, so it's a, 
it's a very uh, it's, it's a very high very high TRL system that NASA had designed with the payload, and the rover was also a much higher TRL than we've ever done before. Uh, you know, we got we got rid of the rubber wheels. We, we provided a, a wheel that was would have survived in uh, a vacuum environment, and that project went really quite well. And uh, in the meantime, since then, we we were awarded a couple more contracts. This time, as a prime contractor to take these designs and further develop them into an even lighter and an even higher TRL um, platform. Uh, using CSA's acronyms, the one is called LRPDP, or the Lunar Rover Platform and Drivetrain Prototype. So it's a bit of a mouthful, um, but it's it was about half the weight of the previous generation, and it was actually designed so parts of it could be, could be uh, Tested in a, a TVAC chamber and exposed to the, the lunar dust simulant, and that that more or less takes us to the present day on the on the space rovers. Okay, so that's a good summation of how you got from the beginning to now. But how about going back just a little bit? And you said that um, you were. Um, asked to be part of a, an initial proposal. How, how did that come about? Because you, you really weren't a space company. No, that's, that's accurate. Um, the, the story we got was that the companies that were working on these uh, lunar rover concept studies were uh, a lot of experience with much of the, you know, the satellite world, the, the optics and communications, but none of them had a great deal of experience with uh, designing uh, a mobility platform, something that's designed to operate on a, a rough, unfinished surface like, like what's on the moon. And uh, the CSA, I think, encouraged them to find partners in Canada that, that has a, have experience designing for those types of terrains. So the other, the other company in Canada that was also uh, involved at the time was um, BRP or Skidoo Can-Am. So that, they're the obviously very large company in Canada that has a long history of building vehicles like this. And Argo as well. We have about a 50-year history of designing um, these extreme terrain amphibious vehicles, which kind of look a bit like a lunar, an old lunar rover design from the 70s anyway. So that's, that's why our name popped up. And uh, at the time, we were working with uh, Neptech and NORCAT. And uh, so they, they approached us and said, hey, you know, are you interested in being on the team? And uh, so we, that's kind of how we got started. So, uh, so you, you basically got approached uh, by these other companies and said, we'd like you to be a part of our proposal. Um, so when this proposal went forth um, with the Canadian Space Agency, um, uh, how did they react to you being on the proposal? Were they skeptical that this company that had no experience would be a part of the team? Or, or did they just review the proposal and, and think, you know, this is something worth going ahead with? I believe the contract was already underway, and we were we were we were added partway through the concept study. Uh, so the Canadian Space Agency was very much on board with it, uh, from what we could tell, right right from the get-go. They, it was their suggestion to involve uh, some commercial Canadian companies that that had experience designing mobility platforms. So we've always felt very appreciated by the CSA. Um, 
right right from the very first meeting. They they took a keen interest in what we were doing, and uh, you know, obviously over the years have adopted many of our our concepts and and continue continue to have a strong relationship with them today. So, what were some of the first challenges you encountered when developing uh, the platform? Well, it's it was a lot of information gathering. We we had very little time to between the time when we were involved, we are we began our involvement with the team till the time when we had to actually produce some concepts. So it was a lot of research, a lot of studying, and uh, just trying to figure out what's what's going to make a successful vehicle. And uh, once once we. Uh, it researched enough, it became more and more obvious which which way to go here. Obviously, we're used to building um, vehicles with you know gasoline power plants. Obviously, on the moon we can't do that, so we, we had to learn a lot about uh, you know power storage, uh, electric systems, um, every everything to do with with electrifying a vehicle. And of course, working our partners at the time also had some experience with that, and we. Uh, we, we got through it, and in the meantime, we've developed a lot of uh, know-how in-house that's allowed us to uh, take take what we've learned from the space projects and, and and spread it out over other types of projects as well. So, ultimately, these rovers are initially part of these uh, the CSA funding. You know, are, are meant someday to be used on the moon. So. What was the challenge in developing something? Because you're not on the moon, you don't have a tenth gravity, you don't have the 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 moon regolith uh, to work with. So, how was it simulating this here on Earth and and understanding how it would work on on the moon? Yeah, great question. Um, there is uh, a couple of well-renowned uh, terra mechanics experts, so studying the interaction between wheels and the ground. And one of the things that came to light a few years ago was that when you do testing here on Earth in full gravity compared to the one-sixth gravity we expect on, that, that we find on the moon, um, the results are actually fairly uh, consistent as long as you scale your speeds properly. Um, so on the moon, you have one-sixth of gravity, but you have uh, 100% of the inertial loads. So any any loads imposed on the vehicle from starting and stopping they remain the same, but your 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 normal load, your your ground force, is reduced by you know reduced by five six. So we can use some computer simulation. We can do a lot of analog testing and just adjust the speed at which we do the testing to kind of account for the difference in gravity. Um, there's there's a lot of tools at our disposal, and it's uh, um, really getting out into uh, a natural environment, like not a uh, not a man-made environment, but an actual, an actual desert, an actual side of a volcano or the side of a crater. We learn an awful lot um, just by witnessing and taking, uh, you know, collecting a lot of video and then analyzing that video later. We see how the vehicle performs, and and we can extrapolate that uh, performance and figure out what it's going to be like on the moon when we finally get there. So, uh, along the way in these, uh, your efforts, uh, to develop these, uh, technology, uh, platform, uh, that could be used on the moon. Um, ODG, obviously, uh, you know, there has to be more in it than just, um, uh, 
you know, just developing a, a moon rover. Uh, there's not much of a market for that. So uh, at what point during, you know, what year did you, you know, did it click that, you know, there's terrestrial applications for this and that we're going to uh, start developing this for here on Earth? We're going to take the platform and build it into a, a commercial product line. How did that start? Yeah, great. Another great question. We started that in 2012. That we had a bit of a, I'll say a bit of a lull. We had finished up our one of our analog deployments, and uh, we were approached by a defense contractor who saw the platform and, and thought there could be some potential in a, in a project that was intended to lighten the load for a, a dismounted soldier. So you can imagine a soldier walking around has to carry an awful lot of gear. And it's quite tiring. And this was a, a robotic program intended to take some of the load off him or her. So we start. We started with that in mind, and we worked with uh, our partner for about, I think, about a year and a half to two years on refining our space rover concept into something that was, uh, you know, more robust, that was weatherproof, waterproof, uh, something that was more cost-effective. That would that would meet the needs for their soldier program. And then, uh, so along the way, in, in 2014, you uh, began to commercialize this, and I believe the first product was called the the J5. So this J5 platform uh, was initially designed for the military, but from what I understand, uh, it then uh, you found other uses for it. Uh, for agriculture, uh, first responders. Um, tell me a little bit how it went from military to these other sectors and, and uh, where, in uh, examples of where it might be used now. Yeah, okay. One of the things we always put into our, our space rovers was the ability to carry different payloads. So instead of making the rover designed just for a single payload, uh, we often had a, a very modular approach. So the payload bay in the on the rover was, I guess, in some ways similar to what you'd find in the space shuttle. It can handle multiple multiple types of payload. Um, we took that concept and applied it to our our commercial rovers as well. So in the middle of the rover, there is a bolt pattern which is easy to match up to, and and since we're able to mount different payloads on, we often go to shows and just show the rover with no payload installed at all. And it's remarkable what what people's imagination will do when they see that. So we often let potential customers make suggestions to us. Um, and so on the agricultural side, we had a potential customer who wanted to, you know, they needed to spray banana fields with a, a fungicide. And the, the government in that country had recently passed a law where they couldn't use airplanes anymore. So they were using ATVs to do it, but it was actually quite dangerous. So they wanted to take the person out of the loop because too many people were getting hurt or even killed. So we mounted a, a sprayer unit onto the to the J5, and we developed a vehicle enough so that we could drive through these banana fields and, and apply this chemical. Um, so that that's still ongoing. Um, one of the other one of the other markets that we've been exploring is. Um, on the search and rescue, we call it search and rescue, but in this case, it's a firefighting application. So you can imagine a, a large, hot, probably smoky fire. The firefighters need to stay out of harm's way. And in this case, we mount a, a basically a remote control water cannon. So the vehicle drags the hose and it's got a water cannon on it 
the, the firefighter you know operates it from a ways back and it allows them to get real close to the fire and apply the water or foam whatever he needs to apply so we did a great demonstration in Ottawa a couple of years ago at the airport uh, the there was, there was a demonstration ongoing where uh, a Boeing 727 was on the on the runway or close to the runway and they lit it on fire and we were one of two companies that were allowed to come and help put it out so we have some great footage of this uh, J5 getting in on the smoky side of the fire and uh, dousing it so those two applications uh, kind of stick out in my mind right now um, agriculture there's some soil sampling and uh, other types of, of sampling and, and data collection that we can use the rover for as well um, are you also looking at uh, the mining sector uh, f- for this technology? Yeah, on the mining side, it's similar in that uh, we're, we're collecting data. These vehicles aren't really big enough or heavy enough to do actual work. As you know, mining equipment, it's like huge, hundreds of tons sometimes for these pieces of equipment. But there's lots of applications in underground mining, especially where you want to enter a chamber but we don't know how safe it is. Sending a robot in first to take measurements uh, and make sure, for example, the, the roof is stable or, or the air is safe to, to allow a, a miner to enter it. That's, that's kind of the application we're looking at for the underground mining world. So uh, when was the Extreme Terrain Robotics Division uh, created? Yes, the, the XTR, as it's known internally, is uh, basically the brand name or the brand for our robotics. So on the commercial vehicle side, for, so for gasoline-powered vehicles, they're known as Argo Extreme Train Vehicles or Argo XTV. Just to differentiate from those, we call the robotics XTR or Extreme Terrain Robotics. Okay, and so you you started off with the J five rover, but I noticed on your website that you're up to the J eight rover. So what what's the difference in in capabilities in in these rovers? Yeah, so the naming naming convention around here is uh, very very important to us. Uh, the J five was actually our fifth generation of our our J class rovers, which is um, usually a four wheeled rover. However, we decided we were going to make a larger platform with six and then another larger platform with eight wheels. So the J6 was a six-wheel platform. And then when we did the eight-wheeler, we recognized that a J8 was, had a nice ring to it. So we went with that. So these are, these are platforms that share a lot of com- uh, common componentry with our commercial Argo product for, on, the, on the recreational side. Um, they are... Uh, very amphibious. Uh, they're incrementally larger in both their vehicle weights and the payloads they can carry compared to our J5. And they're really a, a great product for us. Um, they're very fast and aggressive compared to our, our space projects, obviously. <laughs> so it's great fun for us to have a vehicle that goes faster than 10 centimeters per second. So our fastest vehicle exceeds about 30 kilometers an hour. And it's, you know, you can drive straight into a lake and just keep going. So it's a lot of fun. Uh, we've developed great um, uh, tele-robotic packages and navigation packages that allow the vehicle to follow a dismounted person around and then and then return back to where it started. Um, so it's a great platform for developing our, our internal equipment as well as for our customers to develop their payload. So... Um- 
in, de- in developing this R&D effort um, for space, which then turned into a commercial effort, what has it meant uh, for the company itself? Is, is this something that the company is, is fully on board with now and it's generating a revenue stream that, that, uh, uh, that allows you to keep doing this R&D? Yeah, the, the, the space uh, contracts uh, tend to uh, be well, you know, adequately funded from the Canadian Space Agency. Um, and we've really benefited internally from taking the technology we developed there and then making some internal investment on our own to take it out of the space realm and try to apply it to more terrestrial uses. Uh, internally, you know, we, we're a growing part of the company. Uh, it's definitely... Um, kind of the hot, sexy thing to do here, and uh, that it's, it's robotics and it's a growing market that, that had, didn't even exist five or 10 years ago. In the same way, the, the UAV market simply exploded over the last 10 years, we expect ground robotics to also grow rapidly going forward. Okay. So um, also in 2014, at the same time, or relatively around the same time that you were commercializing this, um, you also got your your biggest contract to date with the Canadian Space Agency, uh, which was a little over $3 million for a lunar rover platform and drivetrain prototype, which I assume which is, uh, you know, further work into what you had previously done. But at this point, you were the prime contractor, uh, I believe. How was the development of these two technologies progressed yeah the uh, the LRPDP that's what the the lunar rover drivetrain and platform that one <laughs> it's it's much much lighter than our previous versions um, it was designed to have a drivetrain that could be tested inside of a vacuum be exposed to a lunar dust simulant and uh, but take take the rover design and get it much much closer to being able to launch to the moon so it's, we've had quite a bit of success with that one. It's, uh, it survived all the tests. We've got uh, between 30 and 40 kilometers of driving uh, under lunar-like conditions. So temperatures that go all the way down to, I think the coldest we had any component was about 31 Kelvin. <laughs> uh, and the hottest it survived was approximately uh, 130 degrees Celsius. So it's, it got very cold, very hot, all the while being subjected to a uh, as, as strong a vacuum as we could manage. Um, and those tests were done with our, our friends down at uh, the Glenn Research Center in Ohio, as well as the Langley Research Center in uh, Virginia. So uh, in reading the um, proposal uh, for that uh, work that you did, um, the uh, stipulation was that the uh, technology had to be reach a certain level. Uh, and from a technical perspective, it had to reach uh, what's called techno- technology readiness levels. And in this particular case, I believe it was uh, TRL-4 for the rover platform and TRL-6 for the prototype. And for our listeners out there, TRL, technology uh, readiness levels, are a measurement system used to assess the maturity level of a particular technology. So once uh, that contract was done, did you meet that goal of getting to your TRL-4 and 6? Yes, we did. It was... uh, uh, it was it was difficult. Um, 
So TRL6 and TRL5, there's quite a jump between the two. So just to further educate your listeners a bit, a TRL1 is basically an idea somebody has. And on the far extreme, TRL7, uh, 8, and 9 are when it's actually being used in space. So TRL9 is the highest, and it means it's being used in space on multiple occasions. So TRL6 means that the device or, or whatever you're working on has to be able to operate in an environment that's demonstrated to be uh, similar to a space environment. So it, it actually, as soon as you go to TRL6, you have to start using vacuum chambers and you know high temperatures, low temperatures. So we were able to successfully complete the the project. We had you know a small glitch along the way on on one of our one of our components, and the CSA uh, you know helped us work through that and, and allowed us to continue development until we could fix that component. Uh, it was one of our suppliers that uh, also worked with us to help develop it. it. They had never even imagined that we would want to test something that cold, so nobody knew what would happen. And uh, once we successfully completed the contract, I think we all benefited from the, the research development that we were able to put into it. So, uh, I mean, you said that uh, you had tested it to extreme temperatures, uh, that you had worked with uh, the, the Glenn Research Center, NASA Center in Ohio. Um, uh, where else was the, the, the platform uh, tested? Like, uh, did you go to any extreme environments uh, on Earth? <laughs> like, did you go to Hawaii or, or anywhere else? Uh, not yet. We, the smaller, uh, we made two two different rovers in that, uh, there were two different contracts. The one created the LRPDP rover and the other contract, a very similar but slightly smaller rover. That slightly smaller rover is called uh, SPRP and it was tested in Utah uh, under a somewhat informal test in, uh, I believe, November. Uh, was it last November, I think? Yeah. It was last November, approximately, and it, it was, it, it's a fairly lunar-like environment, but of course it does, it can't replicate the vacuum or the extreme temperatures, but it's, it's still subjected to rocks and dust and, you know, pretty high solar loading as well with, with the bright desert sunshine there. Yeah, and, and for my listeners out there, I did mention Hawaii. I know it's not an extreme environment for most people that visit there, but if you actually go to the volcanoes and you're really high up and some of the uh, terrain that's up there it, for rover testing, it can be extreme. Uh, although, obviously, uh, if you're going there for vacation, it's not extreme. Um, okay, so let's fast forward to today. Um, a lot of the work that you've been doing is sort of uh, you, you, you got asked to get involved in this. It turned out to be a win-win in terms of helping uh, the space community. At the same time, you were able to uh, commercialize uh, uh, the technology as a spin-off, which is, uh, you know, uh, always a, a plus. Um, but at the same time, there was an underlying uh, goal here by the Canadian Space Agency. Um, and just so our listeners understand, uh, Canada is a member of the International Space Exploration Coordination Group, uh, which is made up of space, about, I think it's 16 space agencies around the world. Uh, and that group has developing, been developing a global space exploration roadmap. Uh, and that roadmap includes going back to the moon and then on to Mars. Um, but, it, you know, it's a long-term process and they plan ahead and, you know, the discussions are in part, you know, what we, what can you bring to the table? And in, in this case, 
for Canada, they're talking about what can you bring to the table uh, if we go to the moon, because that would be the first destination it now appears. So, uh, and, and what they're doing at this point is in discussion, uh, and which they're hoping to move forward, is to uh, develop an evolvable, evolvable uh, deep space habitat uh, in orbit, uh, cislunar orbit, um, and then eventually go to the surface uh, uh, of the moon with humans. But before that can happen, um, there needs to be, uh, the thinking is, uh, some robotic uh, exploration done. And this is where Canada comes in. uh, And what we have been discussing as a country within the context of this group, that might be something that Canada could contribute. And this is all looking to happen after 2020, more closer to 2025 and and, and beyond. So um, a lot of the work that you've been doing is leading towards that. And uh, earlier this year, the Canadian Space Agency uh, put out a request for proposals, the next phase, uh, in this process for lunar surface mobility concept study. Uh, They awarded two contracts. One was to Canadensis, which you were a part of, and the other one was to uh, MDA. So... um, Everything you've been doing has sort of been leading up to this in terms of the the lunar stuff. Can you tell me a little bit uh, about this new lunar surface mobility concept study and and what you're you're going to be doing for it? Yeah, it's definitely the the next generation uh, lunar rover. It is part of, uh, um, it has some impact on the European Space Agency's lunar village concept as well. There's a lot of uh, accelerated talk now about, about what we can do on the moon in the next uh, decade or two. And it, it all, like you said, it all lines up to a stepping stone to Mars. One of the things that we need to do on the moon is demonstrate that we can survive there. Uh, it's, it's a much better way to test that out than sending people straight to Mars. So, so it's uh, intended to be an Antarctica-style lunar village where people come and go on fairly regular intervals, but it's, you're never so far away that you can't execute a rescue if you had to. So in, in light of that, the Canadian Space Agency is, is going to be funding some concept studies on, you know, what, what could a Canadian contribution to that look like? And the, the concept study is uh, intended to cover uh, two different rover styles, one a smaller one that's uh, idea that's optimized for scientific research and simply demonstrating that a rover can operate on the moon, uh, kind of to work out some of the bugs. And then at a later date, they'll be looking for a larger, possibly a larger vehicle that uh, can actually carry uh, two to four astronauts in, in what's called a shirt seat environment, so in a, in a pressurized cabin where they can actually live for up to, I think, uh, anywhere from four to eight weeks. So it's a much, that's a much more aggressive and expensive plan. But the first step is simply getting something on the surface of the moon. There hasn't been any robotic activity on the moon other than um, a short Chinese mission uh, that uh, flew about three years ago. But before that, it goes all the way back to the, the Russians. The Soviet Union's had a, the Lunokhod, one in Lunokhod two. And the Americans have their Apollo missions, and, and that's been it. So all this talk about Mars and landing people on Mars, um, it, you know, it's 
it's a very aggressive goal, and we, we must mitigate those risks and demonstrate that we can do this stuff on a much, much closer uh, planetary surface uh, than, than Mars. So hopefully that, hopefully that answers that question, but we're, we're really excited to be part of it, and uh, you know, we're, we're very happy to hear that the focus uh, is on, on going to the moon, and that it seems to be ramping up uh, in, a, in a timely fashion that might even allow me to work on it before I retire. <laughs> so um, this uh, new contract, it's, it's just a study, so it's a concept study, so you're actually not producing hardware. Um, uh, what are some of the challenges do you foresee in terms of because the, the, you're not developing a rover to, to, to go there and, and, and row you know traverse the terrain of the moon for like a week or something like that this is uh, from what I understand this particular idea is that the rover could work for weeks on end months on end uh, if need be so what are some of the the challenges that, that, that you see in terms of developing something like that uh, you know, power the extreme temperature all of that and the regolith itself yeah so you you've actually answered part of your own question that the the power is a big one uh, we've got to be able to survive uh, an extended lunar night so the maximum night on the lunar surface is uh, approximately 14 earth days which is a long time with no sunlight so somehow having a power source that, that can produce power enough power to keep any astronauts on board uh, warm and, and breathing, frankly. Uh, on the smaller rover, even, just keeping the electronics warm enough during an extended cold period uh, demands a lot of uh, uh, thought that goes to the power systems. Uh, so that includes power generation, the batteries, how, how, how big can we make the batteries, how cold can we allow our batteries to get. So there's a lot of technology development there that we've got to work on. Being able to operate for for months and possibly as much as years in the on the lunar surface is going to be difficult. We've we've invested a lot of effort in trying to come up with uh, non-wearing dust seals. So a, a dust seal that allows a, a pivot to operate properly but doesn't wear out. Uh, the, the dust is very abrasive. It's it's known for getting into the worst places and. Uh, you know, we've got to find a way to make sure that equipment doesn't get damaged or, or you know, you end the mission prematurely because because of dust failure. Um, and then, you know, the other thing is heat. When the sun comes out and it's shining directly on the vehicle, parts of the vehicle can get very hot, and you've got to properly manage the, the, all the thermal issues. Um, you know, those are the those are probably the top three. Operating in one six gravity is really not going to be that big of an issue. In fact. We can we can use that to our advantage. It's, it's let lower gravity. We can use uh, less power to steer and move around. So that's that part is actually uh, what we'll call the fun part. When you saw it when the astronauts were on the moon back in the 70s, um, that that was the part that really looked like the most fun. <laughs> so I think the rovers are going to appreciate it as well. We can make the rovers a bit lighter because of the low gravity. Um, so that's, that's going to be a very interesting part of the design as well. So uh, with this contract, um, you weren't the prime. Uh, you partnered with Canadensis, and, and they actually got the contract. So h- how did that uh, relationship uh, come about? Uh, uh, have you worked with them before? Uh, yes, Canadensis was a major subcontractor on our two previous rover contracts, the ones that, that we primed. 
the LRPDP and the smaller SPRP. Um, so they've got they've got a team that they've put together um, that's that's doing some really interesting work, and they were like I said a, a major subcontractor for us. They you know, we've worked together with some of these guys for a number of years now. And when it came time to attack these new round of contracts, it made sense to you know stick with the partner that's been working with us. And frankly, we've had a good experience working with them as well. So uh, it was a absolute no brainer. All right. So I just have a couple more questions for you um, related to the moon and mobility systems. Have you been doing any work related to developing the platform for commercial mining on the moon or an asteroid? Yeah, the the concept itself, when we the very first concept we ever produced was designed to be especially rugged and be able to uh, fit a uh, a leveling blade to it. So ground working has always been part of our um, our our focus. Uh, the Artemis Junior vehicle from a few years ago was designed to carry a drill, so drilling holes into the ground as well. So our lunar rovers have always been designed with one goal really in mind, and that's to get commercial activity on the moon. Uh, and, and mining is a, plays a big role in that. Uh, so it's always been part of our focus, and we we try to keep the vehicles as rugged as we can. We we actually look to a lot of mining equipment here on Earth for inspiration. Uh, you know, if we're looking to try to match levels of ruggedness and and use it, you know, how easy are they to operate. Um, how how effective are they? How strong are they? How 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 much terrain can they drive over? Uh, this is this has always been something that we we really focus on. Um, and now a little bit more about uh, the division that that you head up now. Uh, how many people? Because I, I remember the first time that you opened up your office, I, I came for a visit. The first day, uh, you only had a couple people there. It was uh, you know your efforts were were ongoing, but it was a small effort. How many people are, are working at uh, in your space robotics division now? And and are you hiring? And is are you growing? So we've got. We've got about 10 people who work only on uh, XTR, so on, on space and robotics. But company-wide, there's a lot of other people around the company that, that play a role, whether it's on the gear division side, you know, helping us design and produce uh, prototype gears. Um, right on the, on the Argo side, you know, we, we have on some vehicles, and especially on some of the robotic platforms that are not for the space market, we use a lot of Argo parts as well. So there's... All told, there's probably you know as many as 40 or 50 people working in in our larger companies that have uh, that consistently play a role on some of our projects. So in terms of uh, growth, while well, we're still we're still growing, and uh, every once in a while we, we have to do some hiring. So we we brought in a couple of new people this year already um, at the very beginning of the year, and we're you know we may be looking at doing some more hiring uh, towards the end of the year. And how many people work uh, at ODG uh, altogether? The company's been expanding uh, quite rapidly through uh, not just our XTR group, but also our gear division's been growing as well. So I believe we've uh, passed the 300 mark. All right. Well, uh, thank you, Peter, for being on the SpaceQ podcast. I hope you'll consider being on a future so- show so we can discuss the progress being made in getting Canadian technology to the moon. It was my pleasure, Mark. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Space Q Podcast. 
If you have comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca or you can post them on our website at spaceq.ca where you'll find an archive of each episode. You can also find SpaceQ on Twitter at Canada in Space. If you like the show, please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app. If you use iTunes, please consider rating the show and writing a review if you're so inclined. <laughs>